And Lord, as we come to your word, we ask also for a blessing upon us uh, that we would receive your word with gladness and with joy, that we would see in this passage that we'll be looking at today how desperately we need Christ, but also how abundantly he provides for our greatest needs, that we may turn to him in every hour, in every season of life, trusting in him as you continue to use every circumstance in our lives to grow us in his likeness. May he be glorified. May he be magnified and lifted up and exalted during this time that we may be strengthened and conformed to his image. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, please turn to John. John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 9 to 16 today. John chapter 5, looking at verses 9 to 16. We're going to be continuing our study, picking up right where we left off last week uh, in the fifth chapter. The fifth chapter started off with what has got to be one of my favorite scenes in all of Scripture, Jesus coming into Jerusalem to the pool at Bethesda and healing this man who was crippled. But beyond that, beyond just being crippled, he was helpless, uh, physically helpless and spiritually helpless. What we saw is that while this is something that literally and physically happened, this healing, uh, there was also a spiritual lesson in the healing of this man. It was a picture of humanity's utter helplessness before God to save ourselves. It was a picture of the hopelessness of false religion, the hopelessness of superstition. And it was a picture of the sovereignty and the power of God unto salvation. Now, every theologian that I can think of believes in what we would call free will. But we have to understand that. We have to temper that with an understanding that while people make choices, people are free to make choices, man is also totally depraved. And we're only able to will what our nature enables us or allows us to, uh, to will. Uh, man's nature after the fall is to hope in something other than God. It's to hope in a false idol. It's to hope in self. It's to hope in a superstition that if, if you do something or, or say something, or the, the possibilities are limitless, uh, that, that things will work out. And, and this is all part of what brings Paul to summarize humanity's condition in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, where he says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Now, if you take that passage and plug it into the passage we looked at last week. You'll see, this is a, it's actually an accurate picture of what we saw at the pool of Bethesda, both physically and spiritually, as Jesus passed through the multitudes of all these crippled, uh, lame, blind, withered people, uh, and not even one of them, not a single one of them, called out to him for help. 
The one man that Jesus went to didn't even ask Jesus for help, even when Jesus asked him, do you want to be well? He wasn't seeking Jesus. But the good news for that man is that Jesus sought him. And he healed the man completely, saving him from his false religion, saving him from the false and empty hope that he had in himself and in the waters of the pool at Bethesda, saving him from this ridiculous superstition. The truth that this story confronts us with isn't uh, that difficult to understand, uh, but it's maybe difficult to swallow because we resist seeing ourselves as hopeless, as completely helpless. And yet, one of John's major themes that he draws out over and over again in his testimony here is the utter helplessness, the utter depravity, the total depravity of man. That's highlighted in the story of the man's healing, but that scene on the physical level anyway is only one way that human depravity, that total depravity expresses itself. Today we're going to see a second way that human depravity, that the total depravity expresses itself, and that expression of depravity is what we would call legalism. Legalism. Now what is legalism? Because there are a lot of people who have a lot of different ideas about what it is. Uh, legalism, I would define it as a set of moral standards or rules that are designed for a person to earn merit before God. It's a set of standards or morals that a person uses to earn merit before God. So it's kind of like a stepping stool that you step on to put yourself up a little further. Legalism would say that if you want to be spiritually mature, if you want to grow spiritually, you must conform to this or that moral or ethical conviction. And legalism always ends up, this is the key, legalism always ends up being a system which is diametrically opposed to the idea, the very concept of grace. Those who are legalists don't see their need for grace because they think that their rules and their regulations are sufficient. Even, even if it's just a little bit sufficient, they stand on that as their merit before God, or at least part of their merit before God. Now, in our day and age, we see this all over the place. I mean, the, uh, the premise of every single world religion is, is this, that, that if you want to, to please God, you must do this and this and this and this and all these things. It, it's present in our day everywhere, and it was present in Jesus' day as well. Jesus often clashed not with tax collectors, not with prostitutes, but with religious leaders who didn't think they needed grace. They didn't think they needed to listen to what Jesus might have to say. They denied their need for submission to him. So their entire system was one of merit, of, of earning something. They, they wanted to get what they thought they had earned, what they thought they deserved. And what did they think they deserved? Because they had kept all these rules. They thought they deserved merit before God. They thought they deserved salvation, heaven, when what they really deserved is the same thing that all of us deserve, which is God's eternal condemnation. That's the only thing we deserve. Legalism is really a, a lot more problematic uh, than it's often given credit for, though. Uh, Pastor Brian Onstead wrote this of the legalist. He said, quote, He obeys so long as he can avoid punishment. 
However, once he is told that the punishment is removed, he sees no incentive to obey. End quote. And so thus, the legalist is convinced that he himself has removed the threat of punishment. How? Not by grace, but by upholding this and that moral standard. So he doesn't see his need for grace, even though at heart he is completely lawless. So what we'll want to see as we go through this passage today is that the legalism of the Pharisees and the godless, licentious superstition of the multitudes by the pool at Bethesda were really no different. It's the same disease, but it's two different expressions of the same condition. The Pharisees were these very morally upstanding people, at least in terms of how people viewed them, and the multitudes around the pool, all the the crippled people, the invalids, uh, they were viewed as anything but morally upstanding. They they weren't in the temple, um, so they wouldn't have been viewed as upstanding at all. But both groups are simply expressing the totally depraved nature of mankind. Both groups are equally helpless before God. So having healed the man at Bethesda, instructing him that he pick up his pallet and walk, what do you think we would see in the scene afterwards? If you didn't know what happens from here, what do you think we would see don't you think we, we should expect to see some rejoicing, some high fives, so, some hugging, you know, some, some kind of celebration of this guy being healed? I, I mean, we should have expected all, there are multitudes who witnessed this man walking for the first time in 38 years. Don't you think they should have said, who, who did this? We, we want to go and worship or, or at least thank whoever did this to you. But that's not what happens. Instead, this healing leads to conflict because this healing took place on the Sabbath. So this brings us to the point of the passage that we're going to be looking at today, which is that just as the Sabbath is supposed to give us a rest from worldly toils and endeavors, Jesus came to give rest from the burden and the curse of sin to all who would repent and believe in him. So we immediately pick up after the man responded to Jesus' instruction to get up and walk in obedience to him. We'll start with the second half of uh, of verse 9 here in chapter 5. It starts by saying, Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet, and walk. Now this is just like a verse and a half. And it seems to me, uh, two and a half verses, that these two and a half verses alone make a solid, solid case for total depravity. And it tells us actually everything that we need to know about the religion, the religiosity of these Pharisees, the, the Jewish leaders. Because what we see here is that nobody is rejoicing. This man's been healed, and yet nobody is rejoicing over the fact that he was healed. Instead, the the Jewish leaders, they they become kind of the Sabbath police. They immediately start expressing scorn toward this man. But we have to understand something. We have to understand that this expression of scorn toward this man isn't really directly toward this man. That, That might be what it looks like, but really their scorn is toward whom? It's toward Jesus. It's toward God. 
Uh, God is the one they, they hate and scorn. Total depravity is expressed actually this way all the time. But we should realize that sin is what prevents these men from seeing the situation for what it is, including uh, seeing themselves uh, for what they are, right? Sin is what prevents them from seeing themselves right. They think they're honoring Jehovah, but they're not. They've created a God, small g. They've created a God who could be pleased by human efforts. They've created a God, again, small g, who loved rules, and who loved rules actually more than he loves people. They've created a God who not only required but recognized human effort and merit. This is not the God of their fathers that they are worshiping. This is not the God of Abraham, Moses, or David. No, the hearts of these men are far, far away from the one true living God. The question that we're forced to wrestle with here, however, is whether there was any validity to their claims. What are they claiming? They're claiming that you shouldn't be walking today because it's the Sabbath. You shouldn't be carrying this pallet today because it's the Sabbath. Was that true? Is it true that he shouldn't have been carrying this pallet on the Sabbath day? Let's take a look at what the fourth commandment says exactly. That's the, the commandment that deals with the Sabbath, and that will hopefully help us reach an answer. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 10, God gives the fourth commandment, saying, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. That's the fourth commandment. Now, if you understand what that was saying, you might be wondering to yourself, uh, well, where does this say anything against carrying a pallet on the Sabbath? Uh, that's the question to be asking. That's a, that's a really good question. The answer is God never forbids someone from carrying a pallet on the Sabbath. So then the question becomes, well, where did these guys, where did these Pharisees, these Jewish leaders, where did they get this idea from that it is unlawful to carry a pallet on the Sabbath? Uh, it came from man's traditions, ultimately. That's, that's the short answer. It came from man's traditions. You see, the Pharisees were, were very, very concerned about the letter of the law and upholding and keeping the letter of the law. And they had to be. They had to be concerned with that because their understanding of the Scriptures didn't lead them to see their need for grace. So if you don't see your need for grace when you read the scriptures, then what do you think? You think, oh, I've, I've got I've to keep these 600 plus commandments myself. Uh, so it led them to develop a system based on human merit rather than an idea that they needed the grace of God. See, they missed, they, they got the letter of the law, but they missed the spirit of the law. And that is our need for grace. If God's going to convince us of our need for grace, how many laws does he have to give us? Just one, really. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. None of us have ever done that for, for one second. Only Jesus has done that. To, to say that I've done that would be to say that my love for God was equal to Jesus' love for God. No way. No way. We, we haven't even done that one. So, Man might not be convinced of that. So how many does he have to give? How about 600 plus? 
<laughs> if, if that doesn't convince you of your need for grace, I don't think anything will. But so seeing that the Sabbath commandment prohibits working, the Pharisees, what they did is they, they added nuance. They, they wanted to understand. They wanted to explain what that meant. So they outlined 39 categories of things, of activities that they viewed as being work, as qualifying for work. Uh, So they added nuance based on their understanding, not based on what God himself said, but based on their understanding. So one commentary notes this. It says, one could not do repair work, so it was forbidden to wear your artificial teeth, lest they should fall out and you break the Sabbath by affixing them back into your mouth. One could not transact business, so it was forbidden to borrow anything from your neighbor. And the list just goes on and on and on. These ridiculous examples of what, uh, what qualified as work. And it would include the forbidding of carrying a pallet or a mat. Another ridiculous Sabbath regulation imposed by the Pharisees had to do with carrying a load. In Jeremiah 17.21, This is where it comes from. We read this in Jeremiah 17, 21. Thus says the Lord, take heed for yourselves and do not carry any load on the Sabbath day or bring anything in through the gates of Jerusalem. So then the question becomes, well, how do you define a load? What constitutes a load? Obviously, the Pharisees thought that a mat did, but really, uh, where do you draw the line? What, what constitutes a load? How low can you go before it's not a load? Well, the Pharisees had decided that even a handkerchief uh, constituted a load. You could not carry a handkerchief from one room to the next room. But here's what you could do. You could wear the handkerchief, right? So to get around this regulation, they stipulated that you could go into one room, pick up the handkerchief, tie it to your neck, go into the other room, untie it from your neck and put it down, and that didn't count as carrying a load because you were wearing it. Ridiculous, right? Absolutely, it's, it's ridiculous. The prohibition from, from carrying a load here in Jeremiah on the Sabbath related to doing so for commercial gain. But this is the problem with man-made religion and superstition. They replace what God has said, with uh, what God has instructed, with man's wisdom, or lack thereof, thereby rendering grace to be a thing that is reviled rather than needed and loved. So rather than celebrating, rather than rejoicing over this man and this blessing that he's received and praising God for curing this man, the Sabbath police are absolutely out of their minds. They're just disgusted that this man's carrying his pallet, and so they confront him. But, but here's what we're supposed to see here. These Pharisees are in the same condition, spiritually speaking, as the people who were by the pool of Bethesda. They are in total need of God's grace, and yet they're not going to ask God for it. They wouldn't dare to think, oh, I'll just ask God for grace. In their minds, they can trust in themselves. They're going to trust in their own ability to do what's necessary, just like the multitudes by the pool. Same disease, same condition, different expression. So, so they ask him who healed him. 
but they ask not so that they can go and praise whoever healed him or thank whoever did this, but so they could oppress him, so that they could persecute him right after he's been healed. How closely can we identify with this man? I hope you see that he is a picture of us even today because we know that the person who walks in obedience to the Lord, the person who surrenders their life to walking in faithful obedience to Christ will face opposition, will face persecution. Paul says that everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So in fact, the more faithful we are, the, the, the more closely one walks in obedience to Christ, the more difficulties, the more opposition you'll face. And that's what we see in our day and age as the culture loses its moral bearings and becomes more and more godless. And it's often very religious people who will cause the most difficulties for you. And I use the term religious in the sense that somebody who loves what is godless, somebody who loves things like abortion and things that the Bible clearly outlines as sin, uh, that's a very religious person who holds those things very tightly. And if you violate those rules, uh, all of a sudden they become legalists because it's by merit. Their righteousness is by merit. They, they, they hold what the culture wants them to say. It's a form of legalism, religious legalism. It's the religion of humanism, really. It's the religion of what, what I call selfism. Me first, always looking out for my best needs. You might call it progressivism. The people whose highest creed is that we should be tolerant and yet they curse and they spit at those who disagree with them. Believe me, I've been on the receiving end of it. Uh, and they will label anybody who disagrees with them, ironically, as being a bigot or being narrow-minded. So let me ask this, as we think about the text. Do you think that Jesus knew that he would face this kind of reaction? Do you think he knew that he would face this kind of opposition if he healed this man on the Sabbath? Of course he knew, right? He's God. Of course he knew. But Jesus came to set us free from the shackles of man-made religion and superstition, of, of legalism, of hypocrisy, and whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. And this man is free indeed. And so the man doesn't cower when he's confronted by the Pharisees. He boldly tells them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. And in the same way, friends, when we face opposition, when we face harassment, when we face persecution, when the world opposes us and vilifies us and antagonizes us, we would do well to answer as simply as this man did, telling them that we're only walking in obedience to the one who sought us, who healed us, and who has instructed us. Simple response. In fact, it, that would be the best thing for somebody. Don't be upset with me that I'm walking according to what, what my master has instructed me to do. Go to him. It would be the best thing for them anyway. One of the problems with legalism is that it claims to be upholding God's law when it's not. 
The second greatest commandment, we've seen the first. The second is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And the Pharisees, can we really say that they're living up to that? Are they loving their neighbor as they love themselves? If a Pharisee had been healed, would he have expected to be scorned? Would he have remained stoic? Uh, because you don't want to go too crazy on the Sabbath. Of course not. The Pharisees are not loving this man the same way they love themselves. So then, they can't be upholding God's law. Because if you're not loving your neighbor as you love yourself, you're already breaking the law. Now, before we continue, there's one important, uh, important point of clarification here, and it's this. Just because legalism is wrong, because it lives by all these rules and regulation, uh, regulations, that doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility to walk in obedience to God. It doesn't mean that we don't have to take his commandments seriously. Legalism isn't wrong because it cares about commands. Let's be clear about that. Legalism isn't wrong because it cares about commands. Legalism is wrong because it denies our need for grace and thus ends up rejecting grace. Legalism is wrong because it, it's a way of viewing yourself as righteous before God without needing God's grace. I mean, think about it. Jesus kept the law. Jesus cared a lot about keeping the law, right? He, he cared deeply about obeying the will of the Father, and yet was he a legalist? No, of course he wasn't a legalist. So he, he just walked in. He didn't do it as a, as a means of achieving merit or anything like that. But he nevertheless recognized the importance of walking according to God's will. And so too, we should take God's commands seriously, but we shouldn't take the view that if we take them seriously enough and if we're faithful enough to hold them up and to, to, to do what they require, that we don't need grace or that they earn us even the smallest bit of merit before God. Let's continue, verses 12 to 16. They asked him, the man who was healed, they asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him, in the temple, and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. As I studied this passage and as I was thinking about this passage, one of the things that stood out to me about this passage is that this miraculous healing of this man doesn't soften anybody's heart. What it ends up doing is hardening hearts. See, there are a lot of Christians in our time who have this idea that if we can just do miracles, just like Jesus did, that people will believe. If we can just show them some signs and wonders, that people will be convinced when, if you look at the clear testimony of Scripture, every time Jesus did something like this, it didn't convince people. It hardened hearts. And there's another expression of total depravity for you. It's just not the way it works in the heart of the unregenerate. It doesn't persuade them. It doesn't convince them. Because they already know that they're under the wrath of God. 
but they've suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. So what it ends up doing instead is hardening them in their sin. And this is why this passage ends up with Jesus being persecuted and, and oppressed by the Jewish leaders. See, this is just one, of the, one, one expression, one of the many expressions of total depravity in man. That is this, that the more the Bible reveals about God, about his justice, about his holiness, about his goodness, the more it reveals about Jesus and his person and his authority, and the more it reveals about a man's total, utter inability to do what God demands, challenging attitudes, challenging behaviors, challenging convictions, the more hardened a man gets in his sin. The more he learns about God, the more he learns about Jesus, the more he learns about himself, the more hardened he becomes toward God. So then the question becomes, well, how does preaching the gospel work on anybody? And the answer is pretty simple, but very difficult. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, the outward call, hearing the gospel, the outward call must be met by God's inward effective call. Now, it's interesting that the man didn't know Jesus' name. But what's clear is that he understood the implications of the healing. He understood that this man, Jesus, whatever his name was, he didn't know what his name was, carried a special, a unique authority from God. And so he doesn't bow to the demands of these Pharisees. The Pharisees hadn't paid him any mind. They hadn't paid him any attention. They hadn't been ministering to him in his time of need for 38 years during the suffering that he was enduring. But Jesus came and he did what neither the waters of Bethesda nor what the Pharisees were able to do. And so his loyalty was to the one who healed him. Our lives would be so much easier and we'd probably have so much more ease dealing with sin in our lives if only we saw ourselves in the same way, in the shoes of this man who's been healed. And the reason I say this is because whenever Jesus healed somebody physically, it was never a healing purely for the sake of healing. It was never an end in and of itself. It was always a means to an end. And the healings were never just an end in and of themselves. No, they were a means to an end. And the same is true, friends, of our redemption. It's a means to an end. That being the glory of God, the glory of Christ, and our growth in his likeness. And so who is our loyalty to? Is it to the demands of the world? Or is it to the instructions of the one who has redeemed us? That's the question. Our lives would be so much easier if we would see ourselves in this man's shoes. See, health and comfort aren't the greatest things, the most important things in life. They're they're great. They're great when we have them. But they're not the most important things in life. No, the the flesh would desire uh, those things and, and think that those things are the most important things. The flesh loves to feed on those things. But God's purpose is for us not to be comfortable, not to be healthy. God's purpose is for us to grow in Christ's likeness and to grow in personal holiness. And this man was doing that. 
He's walking in obedience to what he's been instructed, which is exactly why he ends up going to the temple. What's he doing there? What's he doing at the temple? Well, I would guess, uh, although we're not told explicitly, but I would guess that he's worshiping and doing so rightly for the first time in his life. And it's in the temple of all places that Jesus sought the man out a second time and instructed him again, saying, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. See, discomfort isn't the worst thing we can face. Even being an invalid isn't the worst thing that we can face. And this has to have sounded really weird, really backwards, really, really strange to this man who's been in this crippled condition for 38 years. I mean, wouldn't you think, if you were in his shoes and you've been healed after 38 years and you're walking for the first time in 38 years, wouldn't you think, man, there is just nothing worse than being crippled and not being able to help yourself? And yet Jesus is warning him that there is something worse than his previous condition. What he's warning the man of is the reality of God's judgment upon sin. He's warning the man of the reality of hell. The man has done well to avoid conforming to the legalism of the Pharisees, but that's not the only guardrail we have. We don't only want to avoid becoming legalists living by rules, we also want to avoid going to the other side, which is living in a lawless way, as if we haven't been given any instructions at all to, uh, to hold to. So he, he hasn't become a legalist, he hasn't bowed to the demands of the Pharisees, but we have this tendency when we know that we're covered by grace, this is the flesh's tendency, that when we, we feel really assured that we're covered by grace to go to the opposite extreme and to live lawlessly as if there are no rules. And we justify it in our minds thinking, well, God's going to cover me with his grace anyway, so, so why not go that way? But the principle here is really pretty straightforward, and that's this, even when We've been reconciled to God by grace. There is no room to become casual or flippant in our attitudes towards sin and obedience. See, grace doesn't negate or nullify the need for obedience to God. Uh, That's that's not the way it works. Grace strengthens. Grace convicts. Grace empowers obedience to God. It it motivates our obedience. And that's where legalism becomes such a wicked thing because it's not motivated by grace. Instead, it's it's motivated by self-righteousness. It's not driven by a love for God. It's driven by a love for self. So there are worse things than being crippled. There are even worse things than being crippled for life. There is an eternity of conscious torment that awaits those who will not repent and believe in Jesus. And to believe in Jesus doesn't just leave us the way that we are. It alters our thinking. It alters our decision-making because we understand that we've been redeemed at a very high cost and that we are therefore not our own So we're not free to walk however we like, however we choose. 
And this is why we have reason to be concerned when somebody unrepentantly walks in disobedience to what God has clearly instructed. One of the things that I've learned to look for as a pastor is the regularity with which a person comes to church. Uh, when a person stops coming, I mean, there are so many excuses. It, it would blow your mind, you guys. There are so many excuses. Uh, you know, I'm busy with this or that, or, or uh, it, it's too difficult or whatever. But the truth is that we invest time and energy into things that are important to us. God commands us not to forsake the gathering of the saints, and he commands that we walk in obedience to 60 plus one another commands in the context of a community of saints. So the question then becomes, is obedience to God important to you? Not an obedience that, that strives for self-righteousness. I'm talking about an obedience that strives to please God by following what he has instructed us to do, not out of selfish ambition, but out of love for God. While we're on the subject of, of gathering, uh, as, as we consider the implications of this text, I think one of the questions this text brings to the surface for us is our attitude about gathering together, our, our attitude about the Sabbath, the, the Lord's Day. Uh, are, are we supposed to be observing the Sabbath? Uh, let me answer it this way. Uh, the, the short answer is yes and no. Uh, it, no, if we're talking about the Jewish Sabbath, uh, which was from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. But are we to rest from our labors for one day? Uh, what does it look like for a Christian to observe the Sabbath? Why do we gather, by the way, also on the first day of the week, on Sunday, rather than on the Jewish Sabbath, which was on Saturday? So let me start by saying that when the Bible says to rest... It doesn't mean be inactive. It doesn't mean you don't need to go to church, you can stay home in bed. I have actually had somebody tell me that, that that's why they weren't in church one week. Uh, and I had to tell them that is clearly not what God had in mind when he instructed us to rest on the Sabbath. So the first mention of the Sabbath is found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, where we read this. It says, by the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So what does it mean? This is, this is where our understanding has to start. What does it mean when it says that God rested on the seventh day? Well, here's what we can know for sure. It didn't mean that God stopped doing everything. It didn't mean that he became inactive. No, he, he upholds and sustains all of creation at all times. And if he stopped for even one second, all of creation would just be dust. So what did it mean for God to rest on the seventh day? I'll give you the short answer. Because there are like entire volumes, entire books uh, that give you the long answer. The short answer is that God rested. When he rested, he was rejoicing and glorifying in what he had done in creation. Now we know also that the observation of the Sabbath was given in the Ten Commandments. So one of the questions I'll ask somebody when they ask me, am I supposed to be observing the Sabbath, is do the Ten Commandments apply to us today? And the answer is, of course they do. 
Of, of course they apply to us today. You know, we, we, don't, uh, we don't go around and murder people. Uh, that's forbidden in the Ten Commandments. We, we don't uh, put something before God. It, it's still a sin to make idols, uh, first commandment. Uh, you know, the, the Ten Commandments, of course, they still apply to us today. So what do we do with the command to observe the Sabbath? And it seems, if you, if you look at what's going on in the New Testament, and you compare it to what is going on in the Old Testament on, on Sabbaths, it would seem that there are so many differences between the two that they aren't even the same thing. And of course, in one sense, I'd say that's true. In the same sense that a seed is different from a tree. So the Old Testament Sabbath, we should see as a seed, whereas the New Testament Sabbath is more like the tree. The Old Testament Sabbath was a foreshadowing of what was to come in the New Testament and this is what we see with so much of the Old Testament. The Old Testament Passover has been replaced with what? The Lord's Supper. The, the Old Testament temple has been replaced with the New Covenant temple, which is what? God's people. God's people. And likewise, the Old Testament Sabbath has been replaced by the New Covenant Lord's Day, the, the New Covenant Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath. And this is exactly the pattern that we see the church practicing under the leadership of the apostles in the New Testament. So I wanted to look at 10 pieces of evidence that show us uh, that the, the apostles viewed Sunday, the, the, the Lord's Day, as being the day to gather, the, the Christian Sabbath. So consider for, first and foremost that the Lord Jesus himself was raised on the first day of the week. The fact that he was raised on the first day of the week is mentioned repeatedly throughout the New Testament. The Old Testament Sabbath celebrated God's creation in all things and in the six days of creation, but Christ's resurrection marked a new order in creation. Secondly, the reality of Christ's resurrection set a pattern that we see very clearly in the early church, which gathered not on Saturdays, but on the Lord's Day, on, on Sunday, for worship. James Montgomery Boyce notes this. He says, quote, The celebration of the first day of the week by the earliest Christians, rather than the observance of the Jewish Sabbath, is one of the greatest proofs that the resurrection occurred, end quote. See, the Jewish people loved, they cherished, they protected their Sabbath. And the only thing that explains why they would have moved it is if there was something better, if there was something better for them to celebrate, and that is the resurrection of Christ. Number three, it was on the first day of the week that the Lord revealed himself to and broke bread with the disciples who were on the road to Emmaus. And what did he do while he was with them on that day? He preached the scriptures to them. He preached the scriptures to them, and in doing so, he opened their minds to understand and their eyes to see through the teaching of the word. Number four, it was the first day of the week that Jesus appeared to and broke bread with the disciples while they were in the upper room. Number five, it was on the first day of the week that Jesus ascended to the Father in heaven. Number six, it was the first day of the week that Jesus gave us the Great Commission. Number seven, what day of the week was it when the Holy Spirit descended on the apostles at Pentecost? 
You guessed it. It's the first day of the week. Uh, Number eight, we see in Acts chapter 20 that Paul met with a gathering of Christians, broke bread with them, and preached to them. And this was just the normal pattern. We see it in Acts 20. We see it everywhere else in the New Testament. Uh, And we we see that assumption. Number nine, Paul assumes that the Christians in Corinth were meeting together on the first day of the week, uh, and thus he instructed them in chapter 16, verse 2, writing, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save so as, or as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. Why is the first day of the week the day that they would gather their collections? Because that's the Lord's day. That was the day when they gathered together to worship. And 10, finally, the first day of the week is when the Lord appeared to John the Apostle as he was imprisoned on the island of Patmos. That's the day, the Lord's day was the day that the great revelation of Christ's future glory was given to us through John. And you'll notice, when you, if, you, if you follow me on social media, you'll notice I call it the Lord's day. I don't call it Sunday. I call it the Lord's day as a reminder to myself that this is not my day. Because that's what my flesh wants to do. It is the Lord's day. It is his. And to rest on this day is to do the same thing that God did in Genesis chapter 2. It's to reflect on God's work. To reflect on his goodness. To reflect on his promises and his purposes. And we're to use this day, the Lord's day, to rest in those things. To remember that he's sovereign over all those things. His purposes, his promises, the new creation that, that he's made me as we look forward to the eternal rest that awaits us in glory in God's presence. Now we have to remember, we weren't created for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created for us. It was created for us to be spiritually nourished and spiritually refreshed. Now I might not feel like I need to uh, to be spiritually nourished and refreshed, But then the question becomes, who am I going to believe? Am I going to believe what God says when he says I need a whole day to do this? Or am I going to believe what I'm feeling? I'm going to believe what God says. And and we do it by not viewing this day as our day, but as a day that was made for us. A day in which we would be free from distractions, free from worldly endeavors, free to focus our time and attention and energy on God and the blessings that he's given us. Now, you might hear that and you say, well, if I were to do that, you realize that my Sundays would be, would be totally different. I'd have to rearrange all of my priorities. Exactly. Exactly. That, that's, that's the blessing that God has designed the Lord's day to be. Now, somebody else might say, well, doesn't that just make us the same as the Pharisees? creating a bunch of rules and and regulations? Not at all. In fact, it's just the opposite because we don't rest on the Sabbath to gain merit before God. No, we rest on the Sabbath to celebrate and remember the fact that we have no merit of our own to speak of, but that God in his sovereign goodness poured out his grace on us, clothing us in the merit of Christ, the very righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Unlike the Pharisees, we don't celebrate the Lord's Day in order to gain favor. We celebrate because we've been given favor by grace. J.C. Ryle wrote a fantastic little booklet. It's it's very small, uh, which you can find for free online. It's called Sabbath, A Day to Keep. 
Sabbath a day to keep. And he makes a, a really strong and beautiful case for setting the Lord's day apart as holy. I would encourage you to read it regardless of, of what you think about what I'm saying here. Uh, again, it's called Sabbath, a day to keep. But in this booklet, he writes this. He says, quote, The Sabbath is God's merciful appointment for the common benefit of all mankind. Now, if that's true, if, if the Sabbath is God's merciful appointment for the benefit of all mankind, if it's true, and I, I believe that it is, how could we not want it? Because it, it's for our good. It's for the good also of, of those around you. It, it, I am no good to those around me if I don't have a day where I can remember that I rely completely on God. A day of rest from all the things that distract me throughout the week. And it's a sign of God's covenant love for you. This is the Lord's day. This is the day that the Lord has made. It's the day that he claimed. It's the day that he rose from the grave, proving once and for all that he is Lord of the Sabbath. There are more, if you think about it, throughout history, there are more conversions that have happened on the Lord's day, on Sunday, than any other day. And for Christ to save somebody and to begin a new work in them on the Sabbath as he does in our story, in our passage today, it doesn't break the, the Sabbath. It fulfills it. It fulfills it. And thus the day belongs to him, but it's given to us as a blessing. It's not about rules. It's not about a list of, of do's and don'ts. It's certainly not about gaining merit before God or man. It's about believing what God says and obeying what he has instructed us to do. Just as the Sabbath is supposed to give us a rest from worldly toils and worldly endeavors, Jesus came to give us rest from the burden and the curse of sin to all who would repent and believe in him. So friends, let us not fall into legalism but let us not go to the other extreme and fall into lawlessness. And we need grace to find that balance. But our God, we have to know this, our God loves to pour out grace upon his children. So then, let us embrace God's commands, including the one here that the Pharisees had no understanding of. They made the Sabbath into a burden, but God's commands were never designed to be a burden. They were to relieve us of burdens. All of them were given to be a blessing, including this one, that we may experience fullness of life in Christ. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your commandments. Because if we didn't have your commandments, Lord, we would have no idea how to live in a, in a way that is pleasing to you and that glorifies Christ. Your commandments can be very difficult, Lord. They challenge us. They confront us. And we need grace not only to walk in them, but to come to terms with them sometimes. So we pray for grace, Lord grace to, to motivate us uh, to, to walk in obedience, but also grace to understand, grace to desire to apply what your word instructs. We thank you, Lord, that even though we fall short, 
that we are, by your grace, aware of the fact that we fall short and that your grace covers us, that you sent Jesus to pay the penalty of every sin we commit on our behalf as our substitute. We thank you that you have transferred our sins from us to him and that you have transferred his perfect, unfailing righteousness to us so that we may stand before you justified and so that we may be sanctified, that we may be freed not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. Thank you for your grace that does all this for us, that works in us, that conforms us to Christ's image. We pray, Lord, for that to be done, that we would grow in Christ's likeness, that he would be glorified in our lives. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.